unwrapped no you sure you don't want to crinkle some wrappers in the microphone oh yeah there there's that sweet unprofessional sound you come to expect from another episode of soon to be a major motion podcast oh if that crinkle didn't pick up on the microphone (laughs) it's not gonna make any sense Regardless, this is soon to be a major motion podcast, the podcast where Cody reads a book and Billy watches a movie and then they talk about it. That was too professional. That was. Oh, God. No, no, no. I need to start over. (coughs) Uh, Creak the chair a little bit. Welcome to soon to be a potion podcast. This is your host, and we're talking about a thing. Is that better? Is that more us? Much better. That's more us. Uh, (laughs) If the intro goes well, the episode's going to suck, so the intro always has to be terrible. You know what? I'll take it. Are you just drinking straight Fireball? Uh, Yes, I just took a big hit from my pen, because how has my week been? Thanks for asking me. (laughs) How has your week been? Honestly, nothing went terribly wrong. But I've just been in a depressive spiral for a couple of like days now. Whee! So I'm uh, under the influence doing this one, or else I would hear my chair creak and throw my laptop across the room and cancel the podcast. Because that's, that's how close I am to teetering over an edge. <laughs> how have you been since our last recording? Well... The fruits basket hyperfixation is reasserting itself, which means uh, oh, depressive spiral for me is right around the corner. Every Chinese New Year, you look over at the shelf with uh, the complete editions of two different editions of fruits basket and go, hmm. Maybe. Maybe I'll go through and read them and actually compare the translations this time. <laughs> I'm going to come home from work when you have a Monday off. And you'll be hunched over the coffee table with two books open to the same page. (laughs) (laughs) Just back and forth like, ooh, her hair's in a different place in this panel. (laughs) You know what the real problem is going to be? When I start actually learning Japanese to read it in the original. Oh, honey. You're not there yet. (laughs) Good luck. Not Um, yet. Speaking of Chinese New Year, uh, Valentine's Day happened. Sure did. Uh, we went on a lovely date up the street. Yes. To India's clay pit, which or is it India's clay pot? It's pit. Clay it pit. is pit. Okay. I'm not even sure if it's possessive. It may just be India clay pit. It might be. <laughs> it's one of those hole in the wall Indian places that looks like they haven't remodeled the interior since 1994, and the food is fucking baller. It looks like they used to do banquets there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that's a place you can rent out and have a wedding. That is the decor. It is, like, specifically 1997 wedding banquet. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a good shout. Um, The food is incredible. Oh, my God. It was so good. You had the coconut curry chicken. Mm-hmm. I had butter chicken. And the flavors are great. I probably should have ordered it a little hotter than I did. I think he hesitated because you already hinted that we're white. So, there at my favorite poke place. 
Well, what happened at, at India's Clay Pit is Cody ordered her meal. Uh, he asked what level spice, and she said medium, but like white people medium. And I ordered medium, standard medium. And I feel like we both got white people medium. Yes. But your poke place. So the reason that I ordered white people medium is because at my poke place, it was originally run by a Korean gentleman who I adored, and he knew my order to a T. And he knew what my spice tolerance was. And then they hired a lovely Indian guy. Oh, that's right, he's and I went in and I ordered my normal, which was a seven, and he tried to melt my face off. So ever since then, whenever I go anywhere that has Asian spice, Thai restaurants, poke places, Indian places, <laughs> I order what I like to call Santa Monica seven, <laughs> which is like a four. <laughs> and it's funny because when we met, I was a spice baby. Yep. A jalapeno in the room was a bit much for me. <laughs> Salt was considered a spice in my household where I grew up. So when we met, you would eat spicy food. You turned me on to, like, wings. Like, we would go to a place in Reading called Dino's Wings oh. and Things. And every time we went, we'd get something different because their menu was like a novel of flavor. It was amazing. Missed that place. But since then... Since we moved out here and I started fucking with Thai food mm-hmm. and Indian food, mm-hmm. you cannot handle <laughs> I those can, peppers. I can eat jalapenos, habaneros, scorpion peppers, ghost peppers all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you hint that there's a bird's eye chili in anything and my eyes are already leaking. <laughs> I just do not have the tolerance for that kind of spice. Which is funny because there's a, a really funny gentleman on either X or um, Blue Sky, and he says, "Sorry, what? What you mean? Twitter currently known as X?" Sorry, yes, I apologize. Uh, he is Indian, and he tells the story of how the first time he ate spicy food in America, it almost killed him because with Indian food. It's kind of a gradual heat, whereas American food or even American Indian food is just ha-ha spice. Yes. <clears throat> Very spice forward. Yes. That's that's the American way. Bring the heat, ask questions later. Absolutely. There's a joke there about our policing. There's something there. I was going to say there's a joke there about our wars, which uh, we do have to take a step back to last week because we've got some viewer mail. Okay. You're so nervous right now. I am deeply nervous. You don't have to be nervous. Is it not from Mark? It is from Mark. Oh, okay. But it's fine. Um, he made a great point uh, when we were talking about warm bodies and how at the end of the film they tear the barricade down as a uh, metaphor for peace on earth. Mark made up an excellent point. You destroy the wall when you're conquering the city. When you've won the war, you leave the wall standing. When the war is over, you tear it down? No. How many walls remain from wars past? Hadrian's Wall? Still stands. And that war was in the, what, tens? Yeah. The Great Wall of China? Was that a war or was that more a land dispute? I don't know enough about Chinese. What's what's the difference? We're in the United States of America. (laughs) We just take it. We'll nuke a country and call it a land dispute. Fair. Um, 
Yeah, I just thought that was a very interesting point that he brought up, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. I appreciate that. That is an interesting point. Also, weirdly relevant for the offside, like the offhand reference to the uh, the trail of tears in the color purple. Uh, I uh, missed that. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure it's Nettie who makes like two comments about learning about the Trail of Tears and comparing it to black people. Well, before we get there. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's talk about uh we talked about what we did last week. Let's talk about what we're talking about this week. Yes. And it is The Color Purple which by was by Alice Walker. By Alice Walker, thank you. I don't have that in my notes in front of me. Later made into a film by Steven Spielberg in 1985. And director whose name I'll remember later in 2023. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that in. Perfect. Um, <clears throat> how did you first uh, come to know about the color purple? Slash, did you watch it or read it before this? So, no. In short, I had never read this before. I had never seen it before. Um. The Color Purple was always one of those books that was on the lists of books you should read. It was on the list of books you could read for the AP test in high school. Um, it was one of those books that was like always kind of on my radar as a book. But much like most of the other canon, canon authors that were non-white, non-male, never really, never really picked it up. Um, I didn't... I read Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Were Watching God, for the first time, like, two years ago. Um, and I kind of fell in love with that storytelling mode. Um, and I really enjoy Zora Neale Hurston. But I also kind of compare, like, in my head, I lumped, like, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Maya Angelou, Zora Neale Hurston. They were all lumped into that one category that was just kind of... For lack of, in my not having experienced it, I was like, oh, it's torture porn for black people. A little stronger than I thought you were going to go with that. <clears throat> this, I'm, I'm not saying I'm correct. I'm yeah. saying that's what my brain thought it was. And, like, that's kind of what we were taught about, like, that group of authors that you mentioned was they were, quote, unquote, and this is from our schooling in very white neighborhoods, they were black books. Yes. And we as white people would often be taught about that in hand-in-hand hand with civil rights and slavery. Yeah. So tales of the black experience are about civil rights and slavery until you actually open them and read them and learn that there's a lot more than those two events. Yeah. And um, it's a lot like um, why there are very rarely comedies that even get nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Like the same kind of reasoning. Yeah. Um, honestly, it was in the last... Since George Floyd, I've been trying actively to broaden my reading um, perspective. And even further back, even like 2016, 2015, pre-Trump, I was trying to actively broaden the authors that I was reading because I realized that despite having a liberal arts education, I had still primarily read white people. Didn't read... I read probably more women than most, but... I was still reading the bulk white authors. 
And I wanted to change that, which is why I started reading things like Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, And then recently, I actually read, um, this is nonfiction, but it is uh, The Last Slave Ship, which is about the discovering of the Clotilda, which is the last slave ship that brought Africans as slaves to the U.S., which I will be tying into our discussion later, which is why I bring it up here. Yeah, because if I recall correctly... It wasn't legal when they did it. They did it to skirt the legality. Yes, they basically yeah. did it as a as a way to thumb their nose at the government for making slavery and slave running illegal. Yeah. Uh, well, you will tie it in later, but this is not a book about slavery. It is not, uh, no. But it is, like I said before, it always fell under the classification, classification of black books when I was growing up. And there was always that subtext of... Not for you. Don't worry, you're white. You don't have to worry about that. I don't know if that was ever explicitly said to me, but I always had that like air about things like The Color Purple, which I had heard of growing up, because it was a Spielberg movie. It was nominated for 11 Oscars, I believe, and didn't win any of them. Well, yeah, it wasn't Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> Christ. Was Driving Miss Daisy's Oscar like an apology to the color purple while simultaneously spitting in the face of Spike Lee? Probably. <laughs> Anywho. Um, so yeah, the, like, because growing up in the 90s and aughts too, Oprah was the peak of modern entertainment. Uh-huh. Whoopi Goldberg was a world famous comic. And this was both of their first movies. That combined with Spielberg, I would always hear this mentioned and not know anything about it. And I have a vague, vague memory, I don't know if this is real or not, of asking an adult what the color purple's about because I'm a child and think, oh, it's like the kid with the purple crayon. Harold and the purple crayon, yes. And someone said, no, that's for grown-ups, that's not for you. And that like advice kind of stuck with me until adulthood. But yeah, I didn't watch it until this viewing. I knew nothing about it going into it. Went in blind. And uh, I will give my thoughts on the movie when we get to that section of the podcast. Yeah, I I knew that it was about sisters because of the musical trailer. And oh God, what are how are they making this a so, musical? So let's get into it. <laughs> will you briefly just give me a broad strokes? Of the novel you read. So, broadest strokes, it's an epistolary novel, which means that it's written as letters. Thank you for defining the large word you used. (laughs) (laughs) So, it opens up, and the very first sentence of the book is, Dear God. It's me, Mark. Wait. (laughs) Different one. Doing that later. Oh, yeah. Um, Spoilers. um, And you're introduced to Celie, who is writing the original letters, And she is telling the story of her life with her abusive stepfather and abusive husband. She has a younger sister, Nettie. And Nettie starts writing letters to Celie when she moves out of the house. Um, This is about a third of the way through the book. So the two sisters are exchanging letters, except they're not actually being read by either of the sisters. The way that Celie explains it is that She can't pray. She imagines that she's writing to Nettie when she's talking to God. 
And so that's that she's not physically writing anything down because she can't write. Um, both of their stories are deeply traumatic. Celie is uh, abused and raped by her stepfather, father. Stepfather, but she doesn't know that till later. That yes, it's, she thinks it's her father. She has two babies by him. Um, she doesn't quite understand that sex makes you pregnant or that uh, sex leads to pregnancy or even what pregnancy is. She just calls it getting big. And so she has two babies that are both taken away from her. She assumes that they have been killed by their father uh, to prevent his crimes from being known. Uh, and she notices that he has started to eye her sister. So another man shows up, Mr. Blank. You don't ever see his last name in the book. And he shows up, marries Celie, uh, even though he wants to marry Nettie, but her stepfather won't let her go because you can tell that his interest has moved on to Nettie. Mister is in love with a woman named Suge Avery, and slowly Celie comes to love her as well. And it's pretty clear pretty early on that Celie is a lesbian, um, but she doesn't have the terminology for it. Uh, Suge Avery almost dies and ends up moving in with the family and they deepen their relationship and eventually end up sleeping together. And Suge actually finds out that Mr. is abusive to Celie because he loves Suge and couldn't marry her. They go through a lot of trials and tribulations. She's raising his children and his children resent her. Um, his... Oldest son, Harpo, marries Sophia, who is everything that Celie wishes she could be. She's tough and she fights back. Um, Sophia ends up fighting back too hard, <laughs> eventually, and ends up working for the mayor's wife after she punches the mayor in the face, after she has divorced Harpo for uh, being weak and trying to beat her. She committed no crimes. Correct. She sure didn't. He started it. In the meantime, Nettie has moved in with the pastor, the local colored pastor. I'm using the term that's used in the book. And it turns out that he actually has Celie's two kids, which is part of the reason why Nettie moves in with him. Um, and they end up becoming missionaries, going to Africa, spending time amongst the Olinka, and watching as the eve of uh, World War II is coming Ooh. and watching the rubber plantations uh, come through and gut the Olinka. Um, I didn't catch the timing of that in the movie that it's right before World War II. The only thing that makes it clear that it's World War II and not World War One is that the... It's the 30s. Well, the the Brit oh yeah, the British missionary lady says she missed the first war and she intends to be there for the second. The wife uh, starts slowly. Uh, the minister's wife starts slowly trying to push Nettie out because she and all the African women recognize that the children look more like Nettie than her. And finally, on her deathbed, uh, the Reverend tells the story of how the children came to be. Nettie tells the story of um, her side of the story, the fact that she's the children's aunt, and that's why they look alike. Um, and Corinne, the reverend's wife, uh, says she believes and then dies. Uh, and they end up getting stuck in Africa for a little bit longer. 
their son runs away. I'm glossing over so much. You're telling me a lot that was glossed over in the movie, so... Uh, their son falls in love with one of the African girls that he was raised with. Uh, she actually runs away to join the gorillas that are attacking the French or Belgians. It's not 100% clear who is taking over their land. Um, as they are being increasingly pushed and now forced to uh, buy back all of the stuff that was once theirs. Their son also runs away. He manages to bring Tashi, the woman, back. And they uh, get married. There's also offhand references to uh, genital mutilation for women and uh, scarification on the face. And they both are scarf, both uh, to prove his name is Adam. To prove that he loves her, he undergoes scarification to match hers. Uh, they are coming back to the U.S. and Nettie gets a telegram, or Seely gets a telegram that their ship has uh, sunk off the coast of Gibraltar. She believes that the ship has sunk, but she's like, you're not dead because I can still feel you. So she's still writing these letters from her point of view. Uh, she has developed a business making pants and that's her new living because uh, she has now, she found out that Mr. was hiding all of the letters that Nettie sent to her. Uh, and so she's divorced. She hasn't divorced him legally, but she moved out. She moved in with Suge. They live together. And then Suge gets a boy toy and starts traveling the world because she's a, or traveling, yeah, traveling the world because she's a singer. There's a whole B plot with her husband and uh, Harpo's wife, Harpo's other wife. And slowly, uh, the end of the, it, everything ends up coming back together because. She moves home, and she actually cursed Mister. She told him that uh, everything that you've done to me is going to come back to you. And when she comes back, uh, he is a changed man. He is now calm and stu studious isn't the right word. He works hard uh, when he was lazy before. And he they actually become friends, and they end up... Uh, he ends up asking her to marry him again, spiritually as well as physically. And she says, no, men are still frogs. Thank God. Because uh, her metaphor for being a lesbian is that men without their pants on look like frogs. I don't really care. <laughs> uh, she's not wrong. Yeah. So uh, she's kind of settled things with Mr. Harpo is the son and she's got to settle things with him. Sophia is happy again. And uh, they end up having this party because Suge comes back too and she's worried that Celia's back in love with Mr. She never loved him to begin with. So Suge has her moment where she's finally jealous and you realize that Suge loves Celia as well. And uh, they're getting ready for um, the celebration. I'm not sure what holiday it is. And uh, a strange car comes up the drive and it's Nettie and the Reverend and her two children and Tashi. And the book ends with them all happy and living together. And she is very happy. No. Yay. That sounds like a shakespearean comedy and that it's not very funny but it ends happily there's a wedding and it ends happy so it's fine yep did you know they made it into a movie really i'm glad they did or the premise of this podcast would be really short it sure would uh take yourself back to 1985 three years after the book came out 
And the guy who made Jaws has a new movie in theaters. It is The Color Purple. The Color Purple. An American story for the whole world. It's about life. It's about love. It's about us. You will always remember, Mr. Shook. Old Mr. Nettie. Harple. Squeak. Sophia. And Seeley. You will never forget the color purple. Wait, where's Oprah in that trailer? Uh, she is the second best actress in that movie. She was Sophia. That was Oprah? That was fucking Oprah. I did not recognize her. I don't her. know if it was the makeup they used or her, like, performance in her face, but she is changed after uh, the prison. Yeah. Oh, but her performance is, like I said, the second best. I assume Whoopi's is the first. Whoopi Goldberg not winning an Oscar for this is a national travesty. It is a shame. We should be ashamed of ourselves for not giving her the Oscar for that performance. Blew me the fuck away. I believe after you watched it, you came into the bedroom and you said, I'm so mad that Oprah has claimed this movie. Because it's Whoopi's movie. Oh my god, because like right after, it's on Max right now. If you have HBO Max, both this one and the 2023 are on there. When you're hearing this, the 2023 is not on there yet in our time. But anyway, when, you, when the movie finishes, Max is like, hey, why don't you check out Oprah Winfrey's The Color Purple Story? And after having watched that movie, I'm like, what fucking stories does she have about how great Whoopi Goldberg is? Because my god... She's a fucking force. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, your summary of the movie, which is hopefully more concise than my rambling summary of the uh, book. I just you. cut you off with a burp that now I can't edit out. <laughs> Would you like me to say it again so no, you can? No. The, <laughs> I don't care anymore. This is going to be a shit show. I'm here for it. Seely, a young girl in Georgia, is married off to a widower named Albert Johnson and his three children. Her younger sister, Nettie, joins her to escape their abusive father, but is kicked out when she rebuffs Albert's advances. She promises to write, but Seely never sees a letter. Over the next 30 years, Seely develops relationships around Albert's circles, including Suge Avery, his true desire, Harpo, his son, and Sophia, Harpo's wife. Through these people, she develops the ability to manage the house, find beauty in herself, and eventually stand up to Albert's abuse. The latter occurs when Suge retrieves the mail and finds a letter from Nettie, who's been sending them for decades. Nettie and Celie's two children have been... Oh, sorry. Nettie and Celie's two children have been living as missionaries in Africa and will be returning home soon. 
Celie finally leaves Albert to ride alone on his farm in his own incompetence and moves back to her childhood home to sew and sell pants for a living. One day, Nettie just shows up and Celie finally meets her children and is reunited with her sister. And I cried twice the end. So no pastor. The, pa- uh, the pastor's in there. Okay. I really condensed it down. Okay. What's cut from the movie is the vast majority of the lesbian angle. Yeah, that tracks. Which, from what it sounds like, is a core part of Celie's character. Alice Walker herself, in a preface to the book, describes Suge Avery as Celie's true love. Oh, for sure. Spielberg's involvement in this is interesting to begin with. He was offered... So, Spielberg, at, at this point... Hadn't done Empire of the Sun. He hadn't done Shawshank... Re- not Shawshank Redemption. That was Darabont. He hadn't done Empire of the Sun, and he hadn't done Schindler's List yet. Okay. All he had done were major blockbusters. Like, he's done E.T. He's done... I think Raiders was him. One of them was Lucas. I'm pretty sure Raiders was him. One He did one of the Raiders' is- he did... I almost said he did Star Wars. That was definitely Lucas. He did Jaws. Right? So, this was his first attempt at doing something serious. And he immediately recognized, I do not have the viewpoint for this. I am a white man. This is not my story to tell. And I believe it was Alice Walker who uh, pushed him to do... it. No, it was Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones was a one of the producers of the movie. He argued to Spielberg, I want you to do it. Besides, did you have to be an alien to direct E.T.? And you know what? Good point. In today's day and age, I'd say, but there's no alien directors looking for work in Hollywood. But still, as far as Walker goes, is why I thought she was involved in his uh, decision. She would serve as project consultant as long as 50% of the production team, uh, aside from the cast, would be African-American, female, or people of the third world. Which is also really fucking cool to do. And more people need to swing those dicks around in Hollywood these days. So, the movie came out three years after the book. This book came out in 82. Yeah. Um, It quickly... Like, it was already on, like, six million copies in 82. Um, and then the other point I wanted to say is I wonder if the per- Quincy Jones was like, this movie's not getting made if Spielberg's name is not on it. He very well may have said that. Like, um, he recognized that, yes, maybe you're not the person to tell this story, but also this story doesn't get told without you. The reason I bring up his reluctance was because they more or less cut the lesbian angle out of the movie. There's one scene... When Celie's nursing her back to health when she's ill. And they... Is it that scene or is it the later scene? It might be a scene after A Night at the Juke Joint. I might be confusing the two. Yeah, it's after The Night at the Juke Joint when she sings the song she wrote for Celie. They go back to the house. And Suge says something that makes Celie smile. And Celie covers up her her mouth because she's embarrassed by her smile. Because she thinks she has an ugly smile. And Suge tells her she's beautiful. And they kiss once or twice, like just a little like, are we are we doing this? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's all. That's all we get. 
there's an admiration there that's clear, but it's not a romance. There's nothing sexual about it. So all of that's just kind of completely removed from the movie. I mean, and Spielberg later has more or less apologized for doing that. He recognizes now that it was a, a weak decision and it would have been the right move to keep that stuff in. I mean, also as a woman who's attracted to women, uh, it's that age old, do I want to fuck her or do I want to be her? Yep. <laughs> as, as a man who is occasionally sexually attracted to men, I realized that a lot of uh, the people I looked up to when I was young were in the uh, I want to fuck you category and not the <laughs> I want to be you category. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. That's Late real. blooming realization. Yeah, that's growing up in a heteronormative society for you. Whee! But yeah, like, I want to ask you, basically, what do you think that means, or what, how do you think that affects the story being told, having that angle cut out of it? Like, how much of... Because this is ostensibly a, a story about one woman's experience. How much does that angle of it affect other things that happen throughout? It completely changes Celia as a character. Because, yes, obviously you can't, you can't just take the lesbian out of the lesbian and have the same character. But it also fundamentally alters the way that Celie sees things and reacts to things. Because Celie doesn't change as a person until she realizes she loves Suge. Because that's what, that's her first, like, time that she feels like she's united with Mr. Is when they're both defending Suge from other people. And when it's the three of them against the world and it feels like them together. That's the first time she has any sort of positive feeling towards her husband. Hmm. And I'm probably going to keep calling him Mr. Because she doesn't start calling him Albert until they've been married for like a couple of decades. Yeah. Until Suge shows up. And she like she knows his name, but no one calls him by his name. Yeah. He's just Mr. Yeah. Something I want to ask you is that his father, barely in the book, but it sounds like his father is more important in the movie. He's he's in the movie, I want to say, three times. You see him shortly after Celie and Mr. get married. He shows up and... I barely remember what happens in that scene. Um, but he shows up and... He, his point of showing up there is to show where Mr. gets it from. He shows up again in the middle. Uh, it's like I think it's a holiday dinner. It might be the Easter dinner. And he again reinforces that relationship. And you also see in that scene and around that, that part of the movie as well that Mr. is passing that down to Harpo as well. He's instilling some of those same shitty values. And then the last time you see him is after Celie leaves and he comes over and all the chickens are out and the house is a mess and Mr. is just drinking and barely hanging on and he kind of tries to whip his son up into shape and reprimands him. And that's the one point, <laughs> that's the turning point for his character in the movie. There's no reconciliation that we see between him and Celie. Uh, the way that he redeems himself is after that moment, he gets a telegram for Celie stating that there's... Oh, sorry. In one of the letters to Celie from Nettie, she explains that 
they're trying to get back to the States, but there's issues with their citizenship because they've been in Africa so long and they don't have passports, birth certificates, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So after his dad comes the third time, Mr. gets a letter from Customs and Immigration for Seeley and he opens it. And then we see a shot of him at a Customs and Immigration office. I think he pulls out his wallet at one point. We don't hear it. It's during montage. And that's how we believe Nettie made it back to the country and made it home to Sealy. That's his redemptive moment because he watches it from afar. I saw somebody uh, mention that it's mirrored the end of The Searchers, which this generation of filmmakers in the 70s and 80s, 90s, were really inspired by 50s westerns. Specifically, The Searchers and High Noon. Uh, so, mirroring the end of The Searchers there was a deliberate Spielberg choice that he definitely would have made on purpose. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, the difference there with the end of the movie. is There's no communication, direct communication between Nettie and Seeley. Because I don't think Seeley writes her back. Can't remember. I don't think it's shown. So in the book, Celie does write her back, but all of her letters get returned to her. So Nettie never sees them. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. That explains why they don't. Because the I believe the way it's time is really funky in the book. Because sometimes within the same entry, it will be five years, and then other times there will be like four or five entries in a row that are over the span of a couple of days or months. So it really feels like Alice Walker's playing with time. And once you kind of get used to that flow, it makes more sense. But yeah, like the span of the novel is like 30 years or more. I want to say the film starts in 1909 mm-hmm. and the film ends in 36. No, later than that. It might even be up to like 39. So yeah, about 30 years at least. It's, yeah, it's long enough. They say something about not having seen each other for 30 years. Yeah. And it's long enough that the husband of the little girl that Celie, or that Sophia is babysitting, talks about how he doesn't have to go to, he's not being drafted because he has to stay and run the cotton gym. Okay, so like up to like 40, 41. Probably. So same time frame. Yeah. Shoot, I was making a point about... Time? Before that. I got lost in the weeds with the time there. I'm the one who's fucking stoned. (laughs) I have to remind myself to breathe. I need you to keep me on the rails on this one. So, another thing that... An obvious theme of this book is... Well, before we change the subject, I do want to say that it's interesting to me that you bring up the time thing. Because the movie, in a relatively unique turn for an adaptation of an epistolary novel, the movie still keeps that letter structure. There's a lot of narration from Celie's point of view. And in the third act, when we get the story of what really happened to Nettie and the kids, it's I believe it's Nettie narrating her letter to Celie. So that structure's still there. That said, there are distinct dates on the screen as time advances. There are none of that. There's still a, a, a moment when she's reading the letter telling the story of how uh, Sophia and Harpo break up. And it starts with them like meeting and by the end of that section of narration they have multiple kids and are separated. Yeah. So that happens in the movie but it's still very funny that they're like oh yeah but now it's 1930 so you know how long it's been. 
I remembered the point I was trying to make uh, by bringing up her father. Or his father, rather. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how we got there. So, his father doesn't show up in the novel until Suge is in the house. And he barely acknowledges Celie. He's only talking to Mr. And he's just like, you just couldn't rest till you got her in the house, could you? And it turns out, like, you you find this over the course of the novel, but basically his father is the one who was against him marrying Suge. He thought that she was... um, not good, not a good woman, basically. And Suge says that Albert was weak. And that's why she, she's like, he could, you couldn't stand up to your dad. Like, I'm not going to bother marrying a man who's that weak-willed. And you really see that with Harpo as well, because Harpo, when he marries Sophia, he clearly loves her. And he loves, he has no issues doing chores. He loves taking care of the baby when their first baby is born. He he will cook and he will clean. And Sophia will do things like mending and woodwork and chopping wood and that kind of stuff. And clearly, like, their relationship is happy until he comes and sees his father. And he asks his father, like, sort of through Celie's eyes, she sees it as kind of, like, playfully. Like, oh, how do you keep Celie in line? Um, she just, she jumps when you say jump, she does whatever you want her to do. And his father's like, beat her. You just got to beat her sometimes. And Celie, later Harpo comes to her and is like, why, why are you like this? Like, why do you do everything that he says you should do? Why aren't you like, Sophia doesn't listen to me the way that you listen to your dad or the way that you listen to my dad. And Celie is just like, I guess you should beat her. And it's clearly like, I don't want to say it's a trauma response, but it kind of is. Oh, yeah. But then later when Sophia comes to confront her, because she, they made curtains together. Because she and Sophia are friendly for obvious reasons. Yeah. And up until that point, everything's been happy. Sophia shows up and Harpo has had the shit kicked out of him the next time you see him. Like he's got two black eyes. His arm is bruised. Um, I think he has, like, uh, his ribs taped up even. And Sophia shows up and she's got, like, some scratches and stuff. And she dumps the curtains that they made together in the dirt. And she's like, why did you tell Harpo to hit me? And Celie denies it at first. And finally, Sophia's like, I know you told him. Because he told me that you said it. And Celia's like, in a moment of vulnerability, she's kind of like, because... I can't do what you do. I can't fight back. I'm not powerful enough in character to do what you do. And Sophia, she says Sophia doesn't, like, was getting ready to fight her. And at that point, she's just like, Sophia just looked sad for her. And so they end up staying together for a little bit longer after that. Until finally it gets to the point where um, Sophia just abandons him because he's weak. And trying to be like his father, even though that's not what he is like. And that ties into what I was saying about the themes, which is, like, definitely themes of generational trauma mm-hmm. in both the the sense that you've got the generational trauma of being an African-American yep. and also the generational trauma of having a shitty father. It's, it's interesting because I feel like, like we mentioned earlier, that this is in that category of black movies, black books. The racial trauma is present, but it's not the in the forefront of the story. It's definitely about the, like 
familial trauma and and the the way that abuse breeds abuse. Yeah. And it just so happens that they're black people in the South. That's something that comes up with the Africans, too. That's something that um, when Nettie and the Reverend are getting ready to leave Africa and come back to the U.S., um, she's worried about their kids because she's like, they're used to the indifference of being American in Africa. It has like it has never occurred to them that being black is something bad. Hmm. Like they obviously know about all the racial injustice and bad things that happen in the U.S., but I'm worried when we go back to the U.S., like what's going to happen to them? Um, they're not used to the kind of pervasive racial hatred. They're just used to being ignored. Yeah. And that was an interesting point too, because the it's really interesting how you've got um, the point of view of. African Americans, and I'm using that very specifically because they're the slaves yes. in the U.S. Yes. And then you also have these same people, these black people going back to Africa and doing missionary work, which is colonizer work. Yeah. And then you also have actual colonizers in the French or Dutch people that are coming through building the road. Building a road directly through the village, unwilling, unwilling to move it even an inch to not plow it through a church. Yep. Yeah. And... You also have, there's another offhand, that, like I said, there's the offhand thing about the Trail of Tears that Nettie talks about. I think actually Celie talks about it, learning it from reading it in Nettie's letters. I'm sorry, <laughs> I just noticed the stack of Reese's wrappers on the table. I didn't want to crumple them. I appreciate that, but how many have you eaten, my dear? Enough. There aren't that many in the bag. Enough. I'm sorry to derail you, <laughs> but shiny. What I want you to do is hold up all of them and crinkle them in the mic so the audience can hear. Oh, that's thick. That sounds full. Was eight of them. Jesus. Okay. You were making a legitimate point. We were getting serious and I go and fuck it up. So Trail of Tears. Yes, the Trail of Tears. Um, that's actually the second time that, um, or that's the first time Native Americans are mentioned. Later, again, going back to the colonizer, colonized, colonizing thing, one of Suge's children, because Suge had children and she kind of oh, sent yeah. them to live with her mom. They go, when she's traveling the country after she leaves Sealy, she goes to visit one of her sons, and he is a school teacher on an Indian reservation in Arizona, New Mexico. They don't specify, but it's somewhere out in the southwestern United States that's not California. Um, and she says that the Indians, the Native Americans, call him the black white man. <laughs> And it hurts his feelings. Oh, no. And... They don't have the word for Oreo yet. They also... It's also implied that they call him something worse uh, that he does not like. Not the N-word. I believe it's the M-word. Mm, yep. Um, but she <laughs> Not N as in Nancy, M as in Marco. Yes. Uh, and she, she doesn't print the word, which is why it's not clear. She also does not use the N-word in the book... I think she drops it a couple of times, but it's always, like, men casually talking to each other. 
Women very rarely say it. I think the only woman who does is either Sugar or Sophia. Once in the movie, and it's after uh, Sophia punches the mayor. Of course. <laughs> and she's surrounded, and someone calls her a fat person of ah. color. But that ties into another thing that I wanted to talk about with the uh with the way that gender and sexuality are mentioned mm. and kind of talked about in this book yes it's definitely going to be different in the movie um i i found in my notes the uh reason that spielberg gave for cutting the lesbian angle was he didn't want, he didn't want to increase the rating it would have been pg-13 or pg even probably 13 um he didn't want it to be r um, or X, which they might have done in the 80s. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of talk about, like, gender roles in this movie. Because it's, like I was alluding to with, with Harpo and Sophia, Sophia tends to do all the traditionally masculine tasks. And um, Harpo tended to do the more domestic women's work. And... He was fine with it. The only reason he it graded on him was because of the way that he was raised. And he thought that his father was... He thought that what the values he took from his father were... He internalized them to be, oh, well, I'm supposed to be the one that's doing the hard labor. Yeah. Which is funny because Albert didn't work growing up. Sophia, uh, Seely and Harpo worked the fields yeah. without him. So it's it's the epitome of that, like incel dude bro women should be subservient and do this and do that and they can't fucking chop wood you like, know he didn't comb his daughter's hair after his wife died correct like Celie asks outright when was the last time this hair was combed yes when her mother died i'm gonna have to shave it off it's yep. bad luck to cut a woman's hair yes that's the conversation whoa yeah bro like give a shit about your kids just one Yep. It doesn't even have to be solid. Uh, I think Seely even says something to the effect of the only child he cares about is Harpo because the other ones are younger or girls. He's the he's the only other he's the only child whose name I know because whenever he needs something specific, it's usually his saddle done. It's Harpo, and then if it's something the woman should do, it's Seely. Yep. I think he has two daughters when she moves in, and I don't know their names. Yeah, you. I don't believe you ever get their names in the book either. Seely references them, like, taking care of them when they're growing up and having to wrangle them. And she mentions them offhand later when she says that, like, the they're grown and gone. Of course, grown in this context could mean fucking 13. Yeah. Um, but they're gone and married. Lit by the time I think Sophia and Harpo get married. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but there's a lot of interesting, like, conversation. The way that gender is handled is interesting. Because, like, Suge is an independent, powerful black woman. She's a singer. She travels the country. She has her own money. She has her own house. Like, she is, she is Harlem rich mm -hmm. in the South. And she... She does whatever she wants and doesn't care what anyone thinks, which is why Celie falls in love with her. Because Celie is enamored with the idea of just someone doing whatever they want, and then she meets Suge and she's like, oh, 
she's gorgeous. I, I, I just want to be near her. Mm-hmm. And um, she says, she speaks her mind. Suge speaks her mind. Um, she talks back to Albert. She constantly, she's mean. She is so mean for like. She's mean to Celie. The, the very, first thing she says is you're ugly. Yes. The very first thing she says when Albert is bringing her into the house so that she doesn't die. The very first thing she says to Celie is that you are as ugly as I heard. And then she later admits <laughs> she, she only called her that because she was jealous. Exactly. Yes. Words have meaning, people, is what I'm saying. You can call somebody 30 years of hurt <laughs> if you lie to them to their face out of jealousy. That's all I'm saying. I mean, everyone is mean to Celie. They all call her ugly, and it's not clear whether... There's no explanation of what she... Of how attractive or unattractive she is. Except for everyone just always calls her ugly, but it's that, like... Is she, or is it that, like, oh, this woman's chin is one millimeter to the left of what I like, so she's hideous? Yeah. And I feel like that's the point, is that it doesn't matter. Yeah, because in the in the film, Whoopi Goldberg is not ugly. She is adorable in scenes. It's, it's less about her looks in the movie and more about her demeanor. And it's, I'm not trying to say that being the victim of a, abuse makes you ugly, but it's having such a low self-opinion. Yeah. When everyone treats you like dirt and you just assume you're just dirt, you just you hold yourself in a different way. Yeah. And it's not until Suge comes into her life and empowers her to be empowered. And Sophia comes into her life and empowers her that she starts to, you know, smile and not hide it and stand a little straighter and her shoulders a little back and she just becomes a light. Yes. And that's the part of what I loved about her performance is that she's able to do that magnificently on on film. Another thing is Sophia is described as being very manly like she wears pants, she doesn't always wear dresses. Mm. Um and then you've also got Albert who's the opposite of that. He's the man espousing these patriarchal ideals, but all he does is chase a woman around and drink. And all the things that he does later are after Celie has finally stood up to him. Celie is a lesbian. She never demonstrates any attraction to men at all. She's just kind of... Men have just treated her however they please for her whole life. She has no use for them at all. The way she refers to it is, he climbs on top of me and does his business. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly how she describes it in the book as well. And uh, she has no interest in it. Until he and Sugar sleeping together, and that's the first time she tries to masturbate. Because she's thinking about sleeping with Suge. Not in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, the very first time, like, Suge teaches her that she even has a clitoris. Which is also really interesting considering the female genital mutilation that is alluded to in the Olinka tribe. The genital mutilation is cut out. They do the facial mutilation. Yeah. Um, but the genital stuff is cut out. Um, speaking of the Africa tribe, I wanted to ask you, like, how much of the movie, or how much of the book is from Nettie's perspective? Because the movie, we only get one or two letters from her perspective, and it's only in the third act, and it's, like, one extended scene, basically. So, there are, I would say it's probably about a third of the book is Nettie. 
because it's kind of about a third of the way through the book is when you get the first letter from her, and that's when um, Celie finds out that he's been hiding, Mr. has been hiding the letters. Because that's like two-thirds of the way through the movie. Okay. So you get the story of, like, how Nettie came to be with the Reverend, them going to Africa, and them arriving in Africa. That's, like, the first chunk. And then it's more of the the Sophia stuff and the building the juke joint and um, some of the other smaller things that happen in America. And then it cuts back to Nettie. And Nettie is telling, like, how it's going in Africa and, like, how they've been there for, like, five years now. Um, And they've started hearing rumors about the road. And then that next section ends with, like, the road. And then um, things starting to go bad. And then more stuff happening. It's, like, um, Celie actually leaving Mr. and going to live with Suge in her house in Tennessee doing her pants thing, finding out that um, when her father dies, because uh, she also finds out the... Oh, no, she doesn't find that out yet. Doing the pants, living with Suge, that kind of thing. Then the next letter is when you get the backstory that she learns from the Reverend about what ac- what their their actual father and mother and what happened to them. Yeah. And so she goes to confront the stepfather. She gets basically no closure from him. Cause he's basically like, I actually did you a favor um, by taking you in and raping you because you had a crazy, you had a crazy mother and uh, a loser for a father. Oh, she never confronts him. She finds out he died and goes to his funeral and asks his wife, who's younger than her and holding a baby. Yep. Uh, or that's like what happened. Oh, oh no! She asks how he died. And she says, "On top of me." Yep. Um, and then she finds out that she oh uh, the land is hers and the shop because it belonged to her real father, and yeah. he never transferred. And it transferred to her mother, and then after her mother died, it transferred to her and Nettie. Yeah. So she now owns a shop, the land, uh, and the house. And then that's when it switches back to Nettie for the final time, and we get the kind of long extended. Descent of the Olenka, Tashi running away, Adam going after her, and then um, them leaving Africa. Okay, yeah. And also, she gets married to the Reverend at some point in there. We get, like, sniffs of Africa. Like, there's there's some good montage work done with the the scene where the... It it seems like a coming-of-age thing, the facial mutilation, but it might have been the wedding thing you said. It's not, like, explicit. It is is coming-of-age. But, like, that's happening while stuff's happening on the farm with Suge and Celie and all them's. So it's not as... What I'm looking for. It's not as clear what's going on in Africa, but you do know about the road, and you know about their issues coming back. There are issues coming back. You don't know. More details than that. And you're told the story of how... The three of them, Nettie, Adam, and Olivia, wound up together in Africa. So, yeah, it, it makes sense to trim that down because it's Celie's story for sure. Yeah, it's almost like a not a foil, but like they're they're narratives that are kind of making the same discovery. Because the the other thing is that Alice Walker has a preface to this book where she talks about how like no one talks about. The book opens with Dear God, and no one ever talks about how this is a about religion. 
Um, <laughs> the book is the book is her basically explaining her worldview on religion, and the um, the two narratives are the two sisters independently discovering the same God, kind of, and their God is the universe. Everything that's ever happened. That's interesting because like. The movie also opens, I believe, with Dear God. Um, that's not entirely true. It opens with uh, little Celia and little Nettie doing like a little hand song, hand clappy high five song. Yeah. And then Dear God is the first line of dialogue. Um, but I only thought of religion in a superficial sense, like with scenes that take place in churches and my personal distrust of hip, uh, hypocritical pastors and the like. Speaking of, does Suge have a dad in the book? Yes, but it doesn't matter. So you haven't mentioned it, which makes me think, like, Spielberg might have added this. Well, you cut the lesbian ankle, you gotta have yeah. Shug has an arc. The pastor at the local church is her father. Mm. You don't know this until the last time they're on screen together. Because a few times when she's back in town, like, there's one scene where she goes to the church and he's cleaning up. And she tries to reminisce. And she's like, remember when I used to stand up there and sing that one song? And everyone would sing and all that. And and he just says nothing and eventually leaves. And he just shrugs her off at one point. And we don't know he's even her father yet. And then there's a Sunday where she's singing at the juke joint. And the church is across the river. Like within spitting distance. And she hears a hymn that she used to sing. And the new young gun in the church choir is singing it this time. And she stops what she's doing. And she starts singing along with the hymn. And she marches everyone from the juke joint. Everyone follows her like the Pied Piper across the river and into that church. And I forget exactly what she says to her dad. But it's it's a really poignant line about redemption. And I'm so mad I can't remember it. Um, and then they hug. And... I started crying like a fucking baby. <laughs> and it's an amazing scene. And I'm, I'm surprised it's not in the book. But it does seem kind of disjointed from the rest of it. So, yeah. It's, um... Suge is kind of like the, the town outcast in that she's the one who made it out and made it big. And everyone's like, oh, well, she's too good for us now. And, like, when she's sick... Um, everyone is kind of like clowning on her and the, um, even the pastor has like, talks about like a wicked woman has been laid low and that kind of thing. But there's also like so much of this book is told through like side tales and gossip. And like, there's one kid who, um, oh, it's, it's a Harpo's second wife squeak. She talks about how there's like a, a side bit about how the local pastor, the local white pastor, would sleep with a bunch of the black women. So there were a lot of uh, babies that looked like him but were black. And so there's a talk about, oh, well, you have to go appeal to him to get his help because he's, oh my, it's sorry, it's not the pastor, it's the sheriff. The sheriff a couple generations ago had a taste for uh, black women. And so 
there's some of his family. There's a lot about like family genes and like the ties of family and what you owe to family or don't owe to family. Yeah. And that's one of the that's one of the scenes where it's like she shows up to ask for leniency for Sophia and he rapes her. Uh, as like, and he's like, oh, well, if you were really my relation, I wouldn't be able to do this because it would be a sin. Gross. Yeah. And there's another thing where uh, when Celie tells the story of how she had her two children, um, Suge is like, oh, I thought only white people did crazy things like that. Yeah, not in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you've also got like, the family resemblance between Nettie and Olivia and Adam um, that is basically what drives Corinne to death. Yeah. Uh, Corinne is the pastor's wife. There's a lot of things about like everything being interconnected and um, familial relationships. Yeah. That was, yeah, less on the forefront in the movie. There's still a lot of family values, but I, I, I read it all more as like, how family influences across generations. Yeah. You know, like if you're a dick going down grandpa to father to son, One it's going to carry apple on. spoils the barrel. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if there's kindness and support. Well, let's talk about the movie a little bit, shall we? All right. So color purple 1985 directed by steven spielberg who had done future episode of the pod jaws uh, would do later episode of the or past episode of the pod uh, jurassic park written by and oh i meant to look up how this is pronounced <laughs> i want to say meno Mayas. i know he's dutch um he was an uncredited writer on empire of the sun and he did the story for indiana jones in the last crusade and there was almost nothing on this screenwriter I feel like he mostly just picked the appropriate lines of dialogue from the novel and copy-pasted them over to a screenplay. Script doctor more than script writer. Yeah, uh, but he's the credited writer. Um, I don't always bring up score, but Quincy Jones did the score, so I'm bringing up Quincy Jones. Uh, He also did the score for one of my favorite movies, In the Heat of the Night, and he produced Thriller. Like, Quincy Jones is a big deal. This is a stupid question, but I... Is he black? Yes. Okay. Um... I also don't normally bring this up, but the second unit director who shot all the stuff in Kenya... Steven Soderbergh! (laughs) Not this time. Uh, Frank Marshall. Did Arachnophobia and Congo as a director, but he produced, like, Our Childhoods. That is wildly different from what I expected you to say. (laughs) Yeah, right? Uh, When we get to cast, uh, Seeley was played by Whoopi Goldberg, you know... Sister Act, Star Trek, TNG. Should have won an Oscar for this. I think she won it for Ghost, though. Uh, Albert was Danny Glover. Lethal Weapon. Royal Tenenbaums. I believe your description was, Oh, good, Danny Glover is coming. He's going to rescue this child. He's marrying her? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he, like, rolls in on a horse. And I'm like, Oh, here comes the guy who's going to save these children. No, he's not. Oh, no. He's not going to save these. Oh, he's going to ruin these children. Oh, Danny Glover, no. Why? Why would you do this to us? Uh, Sophia was played by Oprah Winfrey. Uh, later did... Uh, had roles in The Butler, and you know her seminal work, B-Movie. Suge was played by Margaret Avery. Uh, Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins, Meet the Browns. I don't think I've seen anything else she's done, uh, personally. 
I want to bring up her singing voice. She had a different actress uh, do the singing for her. It was uh, Tata Vega, who did the Spanish-language version of Circle of Life from The Lion King. Wild! Um, She's also done background vocals for Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Madonna... Yeah, you know, just a few minor people. I just I want to bring that up because it is a pet peeve of mine when an actor doesn't sing their own songs in something, but they get all the credit, but all we remember is the songs. Here's looking at you, Renaissance Disney. Leia Salonga did her own singing. Who? Leia Salonga. Jasmine. Oh. Aladdin didn't. <laughs> the other cast member I want to bring up was Swain. Did the character Swain show up in the, the book? He's, I believe, Harpo's friend. Helps him build the juke joint. Very vaguely. Played by Lawrence Fishburne. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I saw that name in the credits and I'm like, yeah, I gotta bring that up, don't I? Yeah, he's like in one scene. Yeah. I want to credit Quincy Jones for his producer's eye. Because Steven Spielberg directed the shit out of this movie. This was, like I mentioned before, his first foray into, like, serious drama. And his technique was ahead of its time. Just some of the little camera things he would do in the beginning when um, Nettie is living with uh, Mr. and Celie. He repeatedly would have something block Celie out of frame and leave Nettie. So that we saw the world as Mr. saw the world at that time. Even if Mr. even if Mr.'s leg is the object that's blocking Seely. Like it was very cleverly done. Um his use of color in a movie called The Color Purple it, like it it would be very easy to poorly light your sets and drab colors and costumes, but he doesn't. It's bright and it's it sings in a way. Is the reason for the title of the book ever explained? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, She explains it as what it means to be loved is like how God wants to... It's a discussion about how God wants to be admired. And she relates it to what it means to be loved as a person. And it's just appreciating the beauty in things. Like if you see the color purple in a field, you appreciating its beauty is admiring God. Yeah, the way that it, it's and it's Shug and Seely, right? I recall it as being a bit of Seely narration. Okay, it's in the but book. But she might she might have even said something that Shug used to say or something we talked about. So I can't recall. Yeah, it's a conversation between Shug and Avery or Shug Shug and Avery Shug and Seely, and it's basically because it's after Mister has finally broke because finding out that Ned that all of, that Nettie had been writing her for years and Mister was hiding them. She did. She knew Mister was cruel, but she didn't think he was that cruel. And finding out that he was actually breaks Seely for a little while. Um, and that's when they. That's when she's like, "I'm not. I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe in anything." And Shug is like, "What the fuck, girl? Like God is all around you." And she's like, "Why are you talking about God? You never go to church." And she's like, "Yeah, I don't need to go to church. Church is everywhere." And she goes into this thing where she's talking about, you know, how when you want to be loved you lavish attention on the person and you just want to be noticed. God is trying to love us back in that same way. 
And she also has a really interesting conversation about, she's like, what do you see when you see God? And Sheila's like, oh, well, I see a big, tough white man with a white beard. And Suge is like, no, that's what white people want you to think God is. Because then that means that they're in power. God is, whenever you see that white man in your head, think of a rock, think of a waterfall, think of a flower, think of a tree. That is what God is. God I, is everything. Personally, I think of uh, how God is represented in The Simpsons. When I think about God. So it's just a yellow man with a beard. That You don't see his face? Yes. <laughs> He's got five fingers. No, that's not even a joke. <laughs> when, you, when you posited the how do you picture God, in my head it was like just immediately The Simpsons. And I'm like, that's... Oh, William. Uh, I just see the hand from the Lego movie. Jesus Christ. The Lego hand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, and that she talks about the yeah. the color purple appearing in a field. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I love, like, I love... So I, I love this fucking movie. This is great. This is a, a, a beautiful piece of art. Carried on her strong shoulders by Whoopi Goldberg. Her audition for this movie... <laughs> Is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. All I've seen is this sentence. I did not click through to the article it came from. I'm not going to, because frankly, it's enough. Quote, Goldberg's audition for Spielberg, where both Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson were present, saw her perform a routine involving a stoned E.T. being arrested for drug possession. For this movie... (laughs) That's... She got this role doing Stone DT for Michael Jackson. Why was Michael Jackson there? I don't know. I don't know. Was, didn't I he assume like... because Quincy Jones was there. Didn't he like want to be part of the last movie? Or am I thinking of Prince? I'm thinking of Prince. Never mind. Yeah. This was Goldberg's first movie. The biggest thing she had done since then, or, or uh, before this, was a one-woman show that she did a bunch of different characters for. And I want to say Alice Walker herself saw the show and requested her, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I wrote that part down, but I read a lot of stories. So we do love uh, some on-set stories. Yes. We do love a little method directing. Uh-huh. In an interview with uh, the actress who played Nettie, she explained that in order to get the correct tone for the scene where Mr. evicts Nettie, the only direction the girls were given was, do not let him separate you. And then, you know, Danny Glover being an adult man separates them there's a just a distraught why from uh, Nettie. She just wails the word why, and it's 100% legit, not in the script. <laughs> and it's heart wrenching. She just does not understand, and it's perfect. The other thing we love on set is a little bit of a menace. Oprah, kind of a bit of a menace on this. Oprah? Just a little bit. At this point, this was her first movie, too. All she'd ever done was local TV. 
like as a presenter, where you look down the lens of a camera. Oh no! <laughs> Frustrated and amused, Steven Spielberg. The early part of the shoot. Did you know that she had a feud with Whoopi Goldberg after this? Doesn't surprise me. There's a dinner table scene. Uh, later in the movie, it's when CZ stands up to, uh, to Albert. Winfrey was given the opportunity to improvise a speech. And she nails it. It's a great speech. It's in the movie. It's fucking great. Goldberg goes up to her after they you know, cut and says, You've now become an actor. <laughs> and Oprah goes, It's your first movie too! <laughs> And they've had a feud ever since. <laughs> oh, maybe. Actually, they might have, like, cleared it up, but I love that. I, I remember briefly in the 90s hearing about a feud between Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah. That's, that's hilarious. I love that. I love that shit. Uh, fun bit about uh, Alice Walker, the author. Um, she's actually facing a little bit of criticism right now. She is... This isn't the fun part, but um, apparently she has praised some work that is anti-Semitic. And so she's under fire for that. But she apparently claims that in the 90s, uh, she and Tracy Chapman were in a relationship. Tracy Chapman has not refuted or acknowledged these accusations. She has neither confirmed nor denied. Which is fascinating, especially because Tracy Chapman is on the resurgence right now. She's like in the zeitgeist right now, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but also wa- reading this book, I'm genuinely shocked that uh, Alice Walker is not a lesbian. She was, however, the first legal inter. She was part of the first legal interracial couple couple in Missouri. Oh no, Mississippi. No Good for her, Mississippi. Yes, they, uh, she was married to a Jewish civil rights lawyer in the 60s. Uh, they moved to Mississippi, and they were the first legally married interracial couple in Mississippi since miscegenation laws were introduced in the state. Uh, that union produced their only daughter, and they got divorced in 76. Damn. Yeah. Okay. If you didn't say the divorce thing, I was like, it's weird that she's praising anti-Semitic work, but... I wonder if she's taking the divorce a little too hard. The work may also... I have not looked super deep yeah. into it. It might be one of those things where this guy had one paper that she praised and he said some bullshit afterwards. Because that um, is 100% a thing that's been happening lately. But also he's British, so... Oh, yeah, they're... <laughs> everything's normal on Totally Normal Island. <laughs> so there was some uh, controversy when this movie came out. Yes. It was decried by some black organizations because of its depictions of black men being stereotypically violent and uh, abusive. abusive. I completely understand. I know my word doesn't mean a lot here being a white boy. I read it as a generational thing. Older Mr. Passed It Down to Mr. Passed It Down to Harpo. But I, I'm not going to say that anyone who thinks that way about this movie is incorrect either. That is a completely valid opinion to have. 
My opinion is that, and again, I understand that I am a white woman, um, but my opinion is that these men would behave in similar ways. Uh, I'm not going to say identical because, of course, you do have, you can't tease out different portions of an identity. Like, the fact that I am a white woman who's attracted to women in addition to men is all part of my identity. You can't just take one part or the other. Mm-hmm. If I were a black woman that was attracted to women and men, my I might have a completely different opinion on it. But my opinion is that these men would have behaved the same way, whether they were white, black, Hispanic, Asian, yeah. whatever. The point is not... They happen to be black men because that was the experience that Alice Walker was sharing. Exactly. Exactly. And she said as much. Uh, the people involved in the movie fiercely defended it at the time. Oprah said, uh, it's one woman's story. It's not meant to be the history of every black man or woman in this country. And I wish they'd just shut up about it. Thank you, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopi said, we got a lot of shit from a lot of people in the NAACP. I was really pissed off. Spielberg made a damn fine film. And Walker herself loves the adaptation. Yeah. I think she said it took a bit to grow on her. She saw an early... No, she saw the final cut alone and wasn't sold, but it was when she saw it with an audience that she realized what a powerful movie that Spielberg made. Um, so, as Bill and I have mentioned, we are not white. So, we are not white. Or We are white. Sorry. Wait. <laughs> Shit. We are we white. We are white. We are... Not cu- black. We are a couple of honkies. So we actually reached out to several of our non-white friends, specifically black friends. We have black friends. <laughs> to <laughs> Look see... at us being good white liberals in Southern California with our black friends. <laughs> if I lampshade the stereotype, it means we're, we're cool, right? We're cool? <laughs> uh, so we did reach out to the intended audience. <laughs> oh, God, that's worse. <laughs> We, re- we reached out to black folk we know for opinions because yes. we understand that it is Black History Month. Yeah. And we want to amplify black voices where we can with our limited platform. And that's why we watched a black movie with a predominantly black cast and reached out to black friends to so that they can have their voices heard on this platform. Yes. Um, and... For our the... audience of eight. <laughs> and... Uh... The friend of mine that responded said that she actually invited her sister-in-law to go see the new Color Purple with her, and her sister-in-law declined because of exactly what we were just talking about. She said that this negative stereotypes of black men. And my friend to this said that, yes, the men in the movie are or can be abusive and toxic and violent. She's like, but so can men in real life. It's a... It's... She's telling a story, but she's also talking about people that exist in real life. And that's not bad. But she also understands why people feel the way they do. Yeah, for sure. What did she think of the movie? Or are you going to wait until we talk about it? Uh, she, I don't think she saw it. Oh. I don't think she ended up seeing it. Okay. Well, we haven't seen it yet either. Because on Friday the 16th of December, it is not December. What month are we in? It's got a two in it. Uh, on Friday, the 16th of February, The Color Purple 2023 is coming to Max, which means I almost paid $20 for it last weekend and thankfully didn't. 
so we will be watching that in the coming days, and we will record our thoughts on that one uh, after we both have seen it. Yes. And just give our little brief thoughts, and hopefully by then uh, some more people get back to us with their opinions so we can share some other thoughts from, frankly, people whose opinions matter more than ours on this topic. How are they going to turn this into a musical? I don't understand. They're going to sing songs, Cody. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to do this in a musical, and uh, we're going to find out. Uh, so after you listen to this trailer that hides the fact that it's a musical... <laughs> hey, they, like, sing in it. I think there's, like, a couple shots of them dancing. I haven't really seen the trailer. Uh, yeah. But after you, our lovely audience, hears the trailer, we will be three or four days in the future to talk about the movie. Yay! Today, our teacher taught us about a place called Africa. She say our mamas come from Queens over there. That means that we... Royalty. <laughs> I... Don't need... You to love me. Afternoon. I need me a wife. Even if we have to part, you and me, us, us have, have one heart. I don't need Get off my land! You... I'll write you every day! Nothing but death can keep me from it! Oh, Miss Seelick! You must ain't got no kinfolk around these parts. All I had was my sister. <laughs> She was the only one ever loved me. I'm gonna hold my head up. I'm gonna put my shoulders back. It's time for you to see the world. There's gonna be some changes made. Put it on. This ain't me. Hush. We need to look like we belong. Let's see the smile and color. <gasps> oh, sweet and loving God. <laughs> also got like the the sour neither of which the ranch is savory the candy has the sour so it's not it doesn't register my brain as the same place as sweet even though it's made of sugar yes because it's it's not like like when i want sour candy it's not the same thing as wanting like a reese's peanut butter cup yeah, no, because, like, chocolate is kind of a different... Because chocolate's a bitter, but yeah. it's also still mixed full fuck of sugar. But it's it's also... There's a different craving between wanting a gummy bear or wanting, like, gummy candy and wanting sour candy. It still doesn't explain why you thought to dip the sour straw in ranch dressing. I was high. And also, we're back. 
Also, this is not the worst of my food crimes. No, uh, but I don't want you to go to jail for your food crimes. We are back. We just... Uh, I almost said enjoyed. We just watched <laughs> the 2023 uh, The Color Purple musical oh, film. Boy, it was really pretty. It was beautifully shot by a director whose name I promised to get right this time. <laughs> and it is... <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Blitz Bazawule? Yes, Blitz Bazawule. I'm going to go with that. B-A-Z-A-W-U-L-E. Yes, I felt bad for mumbling through his name that I did not yet know on the last recording and wanted to make sure that we said it properly here because we're talking about his movie now. Yes. His uh, adaptation of the musical that was adapting the movie that was adapting the book. Yeah. (laughs) There were some things that got lost in translation. There sure were. Um, I don't think we're going to need to go into as much detail this time around as we did. No. Uh, This is mostly discussing the... This is going to be about the 2023. Yeah, and, like, just our thoughts and vibes. Yeah. Because we literally just finished watching, so... Although, you can edit this out. Uh, I do want to talk about the white women thing, which we can wrap up at the end. Let's talk about the white women thing now. Okay. So something that we actually, as we just said, uh, we were going to talk about the 2023. Something that we didn't discuss about both the book and the previous movie, um, and I wanted to talk about, was the role specifically of white women. Because white men are kind of not entities. They're, you have... No, like, the, the white man in, in the original has one job, and it is to get punched by Sophia. <laughs> right in the jaw. You also got the white, uh, the white British people that are the colonizers, the original colonizers. But for the most part, you don't see a lot of white men. They're kind of just like the over, the overarching authority figure is the patriarchal black male. But you've also got white women, and white women play several interesting roles. Uh, and especially in the book, and I'm also probably going to talk about the movie a little bit. Because I have seen the 2023 now. Yeah. The the thing that a lot of people say about white women, and it's the thing that you always hear about in terms of voting, uh, especially when you see conservative women voting against their own interests, uh, is that because white women have this kind of close approximation to power, like they're usually in the room with the white men, so to speak, they're always going to kind of vote or act against their own interests or uphold the existing power structure because, hey, at least we're not black women. And the white women in this book, in this story, absolutely do that. You've got Miss Millie, the mayor's wife. Miss Millie, man. Miss Millie is that, like, stereotypical white liberal woman who's like, oh, I care so much about the black community. <gasps> what are you doing here, black man, near my car? Help! Help! This black man is trying to help me! Help! It's... Miss Millie as a character is hilarious because... She's a fucking cartoon villain. She is... 
she wants Sophia as her maid because she sees Sophia as with children, which is hilarious because Sophia is not good with children. That's one of the things that's emphasized in the book is that she likes babies and like she enjoys children, but she's not a good mom. She's not good at mothering. She's more of going back to what we were talking about earlier with the gender role stuff. Um, she talks of, she's more into like the masculine coded side of things, which is not mothering. Harpo does a lot of the mothering. One of our cats is currently vomiting directly behind me. <laughs> um. <laughs> I was hoping to not have to edit too much on this half. Fuck. So, first I of all, just when swept she... swept over there. When she sees Sophia, first of all, she asks if the children are hers, which is true in the book and in the movie. Mm -hmm. which is super just racist mm -hmm. at its core. And it also demonstrates, like, how many women... You always see black women with children. Like, it kind of sets up this, this narrative that this, this white woman has seen so many black women with children that aren't theirs. Which is, oh boy, that's an interesting conversation to have. But then, when she refuses to work for her, she immediately gets her husband involved. And her husband hits Sophia, and Sophia hits back. Mm -hmm. And that's the crime. Not not her husband slapping the uh, the woman. It is the woman fighting back is the crime, which is yeah. an interesting story to tell in a story about abuse. A crime she serves six years for? She serves 11 total. The six years in jail, and then working for the mayor as part of her sentence. Yeah. In the book, when she's working for the mayor, when she's working for Miss Millie, it's hilarious because Miss Millie is afraid of her. And it's like, you wanted this woman to work for you. But when she does finally start working for you, you are so scared of her that you don't, you essentially are still doing all of the work. Uh, there's a thing where the little boy, there's a little scene where Celie goes to visit uh, Sophia while she's working. And Eleanor Jane is the daughter and the little boy, I don't remember what his name is because he's only in that one scene, but he wants something from Sophia and uh, he goes to kick her and Sophia just moves her leg. So he kicks a box that has a nail in it. Oh, God, I love Sophia. Immediately starts crying and his mom comes over and is like, what did you do? Did Sophia do this to you? And Eleanor Jane, the little girl, is just like, no, mama, he did it to himself trying to kick Sophia. And that's where the the mayor's wife kind of gives her a dirty look and then just picks up the boy and goes inside. Eleanor Jane, however, is another uh, sort of major part of like the last third of the book. As she grows up, she kind of keeps her relationship with Sophia, which Sophia doesn't understand. Because she's like, you were just a job. I don't actually care about you. And Eleanor Jane doesn't understand that. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they do end up coming to a, a... Things end up coming to a head where Sophia's basically like, look, you were nice to me when I was working for your family, and I appreciate that. But I was an employee, there was not real love. There may have been affection, but I don't love you. You're not my child. You took Your family took me away from my actual children to the point that they don't know me. And Eleanor Jane actually takes that back to her family. And the next time you hear about her, 
she is again friends with Sophia, but they're actually friends now because apparently Sophia describes it as she actually she asked her mom why Sophia worked for them. Oh, so it's it's like a really interesting thing of performative allyship versus actual allyship. Yeah, interesting that that was all cut from the movie. Also, Sophia advocating for a healthy work-life balance cut from the movies. <laughs> Oh, I found a way to go anti-capitalist. They cut a lot from this movie. Yeah, the especially the 2023. It it's got about the same runtime as the uh, Spielberg version, but you know it's a musical, so half of that is songs. So a lot of scenes are shortened or completely cut, and it just sucks so much of the weight out of the dramatic weight. The um. You know, the gravitas. the gravitas of a lot of these scenes. It. Like, they should, like, for example, the scene where she attempts to kill Mr. When Celia attempts to kill Mr. Yeah. In the 85, it's the second time we see her shave him. And it's tense because Suge understands what's going on, but she's got to run to get there before she does it. She's slowly, like, honing the the razor... And he's getting antsy, and the tension is building, and it takes a few minutes. This one, there's just one shaving scene, and it mirrors the first one from the first movie. And then when she tries to kill him, it's at the Easter dinner, and it's just she lunges at him with a knife and holds it there for a second, and then they pull her off her, and it's over. And it's just in two lines of dialogue, it's done, and it completely just strips that scene of all the tension it had. So, the trying to kill him with the razor scene... Um, she's not even shaving him. She's just so angry and struck with grief by the fact that his cruelty and hiding of the letters has been revealed that she straight up is just going to go after him with a razor and Suge talks her down. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it just, it really felt like they wanted to, they were trying to speed through from song to song and not really letting and also adding things that i didn't like or didn't think were necessary like honestly the whole subplot with suge and her father completely unnecessary strips the strips all of the um so the way that i see suge is that she her whole point as a character is she doesn't need to apologize to her parents she doesn't care what her parents think of her Ultimately, the only people she cares kind of what they think of her at the end of the book are Celie and to an extent, some of her children. Like she, she, the one that meets with her is her uh, son that is the teacher in the Southwest. Um, and they kind of have a relationship, but it's clearly like a similar relationship to what she has with like a coworker or her band or whatever. It's like, we are friendly, but you, you didn't raise me. I didn't raise you. We're just reconnecting and I'm interested in you, but it's too late. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of similar to the relationship that Celie has with Adam and Olivia, where it's like, I'm so glad that we're reunited, but I understand that I can't, I can't go back and raise you, but at least Nettie was there. And the whole subplot with her dad, it felt like they were using it in this movie to 
distract from the lesbian subplot almost. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. And it's it's interesting that you didn't like that because in the 85, that moment, and I talked about this earlier, that moment when she reconciles with her father, I wept, I bawled. It, it hit me so hard in that moment. Um, it didn't hit me quite as hard this time. It was a little less, it was a little bit more subdued this time, uh, both in the music choice of the scene and how it was shot and performed. But it's it's interesting because you, as we were watching this movie, you were telling me a lot about things that were different from the book, and almost every time something would be different from the book, but the same as Spielberg's movie. Yeah. And it made me feel like, and seeing names like Quincy Jones and Oprah Winfrey and Steven Spielberg on the producers list, um, and Oprah Winfrey had a nice little, not Oprah Winfrey, I fucked that up watching the movie too, Whoopi Goldberg had a nice little cameo at the beginning uh, when young Celia is giving birth, she's the midwife, like having so much reverence for the original film it felt to me like they almost ignored the novel yeah it felt more like an adaptation of the and i'm not saying this is necessarily their fault because it was probably the it's, script of the musical yeah I feel it's an adaptation of the musical so i don't even know if i'm mad at the filmmakers per se but whoever wrote the book for the musical probably didn't read the novel they were yeah. just adapting the movie yeah. And then this movie was adapting the musical. Again, not the novel. So it's it's like a game of telephone where Spielberg heard it and reinterpreted it himself. And now two more people down the line. It's still mostly there, but there are some things that are different. And we're not quite sure where they came from. It almost feels like, despite the fact that this did have like a lot of vibrant colors and interesting cinematography, oh, and beautiful stuff, to look at! It's a gorgeous movie. It's almost like they sucked some of the soul from the book out of it. I want to make a joke about you using the term "soul" there, but I won't. Um, because I agree with you. Like it, it felt, it felt, uh. Corporate. Yeah, it felt like they were trying to make it palatable. Like, the joke that I made to you while we were watching was, oh, did they write the lesbian subplot for China audience so they can cut it out? Because, oh my god. Like, they went one step further in this one than they did in 85, and it was having them wake up in the same bed the next morning. And then, like, live together, and it's clear that there's, like, a romantic element but to also, it. But also, like, she, they cut out the entire jealousy bit. Yeah. Grady doesn't run off with uh, Squeak, um, which is kind of important. Again, he didn't in the other one that I recall. Yeah. Because you kind of, that at that point, then you have to get into the, um, how she does find another boy to, to fool around with. And I kind of get cutting that because he is explicitly 19. Um, and at that point, she's in her probably 50s. But it just doesn't sit right with me that they're like, oh, we're going to do the lesbian subplot, but they don't actually put any guts behind it, it. It feels to me like they didn't know that there was a lesbian plot in the book. And they saw the, the 85 and went, oh, we're in modern times. We can make it even more explicit that they're gay. Let's have them 
wake up in the bed together the next morning and like not understand that if they had opened up the book and read the words that there's a lot more they I just kicked the microphone there's a lot more that they could have pulled from and expanded upon and would have been able to do in a musical in 2023 it felt like there was more sexual chemistry between Sophia and Celie than there was between Celie and Shook and that's nothing against the actresses it's just the screen time, the amount of screen time they had together. She was more on screen with Sophia. Yeah, because this is Oprah's The Color Purple now. And she needed to highlight her character. It's, it's wild to me. The more that we've talked about it, and I just edited what we talked about the other day, this morning, so I've, it's all fresh in my head now, which it wasn't when we were recording. I do want to say that so that I don't get shat upon later. Uh, I definitely misremembered some things, and I guarantee you I got some things wrong about the 85. Uh, so I apologize. Um, but uh, like it is very clear that what the novel is is a love story. With Celie and Shug and her sister and that. And that's, like, really not in this new one at all. And also, there's, like, no... You've got a couple of scenes with the the religious elements. Like, you have the... Spiritual at the beginning... Gathering the whole town together. You mm-hmm. and I both had a visceral reaction to that. Um, like, the the first, like, two of the first three songs, one was a spiritual, and then one was a chain gang song. Ooh. Like, come on. And the one, like, original thing, we pointed this out because neither of us recognized the scene, is when Suge and Celie go on a date. Yes. They go to the movies. And the one original thing they did for I, either the musical or for this movie was still like a ripoff of 40s 30s musicals it looked exactly like that scene and i can't remember the movie but it's the scene of ginger rogers and fred astaire in that dress where her they go up the stairs and down the stairs and i just remember that because her dress was weighted so it would flow correctly yeah i i can't remember what movie that's from but i know which scene you're talking about yeah it's like those like you can imagine 25 dancers coming down those stairs in perfect unison it's and that's the one song in the musical that sounds just like any other musical yeah it's like every love song ballad in every musical yeah and like the one thing that made it different was that it's two women yeah which you know appreciated it's there's some nice harmonies in there i don't want to bash the music because i don't think the music was bad it just it just had no heart it had no life it's 2023. I think that's the problem. It's 2023. I... Like, we're on the cusp of AI making whole movies now. So... Black Panther felt more joyful and heartfelt than this movie did at times. I almost felt that this movie was too joyful at times. So one of the things we talked about with the previous ones was like reasons that people didn't want to see the movie was the negative portrayal of black men and toxic yeah. masculinity in black men. And and to its credit, I think they did something about that with this one Harpo, with the exception of the one time he hits uh, Sophia, which is not shown on camera. She leaves immediately. She and does she have the black eye. She has though. the black eye, but we don't see the actual action. He is 
a perfect gentleman the rest of the movie. It's really interesting how the only time that you, with connection to, in connection to Sophia, you see her hit men. You never see men hit her. Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> men know better. Um, well, the mayor slaps her. Um, oh, that's true. He's not a man. He's You'd white. Never see- He's a monster. Uh, yeah. But for the most part, whereas you see Seely get hit a lot, um, you only ever see Sophia get hit once, and it's by a white man. Yeah. And she immediately hits back. I feel like, again, having not seen the 85, I don't really like the change to Mr.'s character. I don't mind the, I don't want to call it updating, but the change from... um, the ship sinking and her getting the notice that Nettie died to the letter about them having issues with customs and immigration. Um, I think that that's something that more of a modern audience can, can understand and agree with as opposed to the kind of abstract notion of a, a travel disaster. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of like the change and I told you this while we were watching as well, but it, Gives Mr. Something to do to materially help. He sells off part of his land in this one to afford the paperwork to get Nettie and the kids back to the United States. And apparently her whole family. Like, it's like six people. (laughs) (laughs) So that's another thing is you've got two and a half hours and you gloss over all that Nettie experiences. Well, there's an hour of music they got to cram in there. <laughs> You're just... Nettie's point of view is as important as Seely's. Yes, this is Seely's book and Seely's movie, but Nettie is coming to the same conclusions that Seely is through wildly different means, and that's important. Mm-hmm. Because you... you It's ultimately... It is a love story, and you want to see both parts of the story. I also... To go back to my point about it being 2023... Gay people, especially gay women, especially gay black women, and just black women in general, black people in general, deserve more than crumbs of representation. And Mm -hmm. this felt like a cynical, commercialized crumb of representation. Here you go. Here's your one lesbian kiss. Like, I'm looking back at... 2016, 17, 18, I'm trying to remember the exact year, but Hollywood was our, like, we were already complaining about Hollywood just digging back into old IP and making a new movie and just, like, corporatizing and monetizing nostalgia. But black cinema at the time was still Moonlight, right? Hollywood did Green Book, but, like, Moonlight came out, you know? Um, Spike Lee is still doing some really interesting things. Black Klansman was pretty recently, uh, recent, uh, what was the other one he just did? Uh, Defy Bloods was yeah. an incredible, uh, Which, he made some incredible decisions in that. That was also a really interesting exploration of toxic masculinity in black men. Yes. <laughs> but suddenly Hollywood realized, and it's probably because of Black Panther, Oh, black people will spend their money on movies, too. Oh, let's dip into their nostalgia. Shit, we haven't let them have anything ever. What's all we've got? Oh, this movie a white man made? We trust Steven Spielberg. Let's bring back the color purple. 
and strip it of all of its humanity and its spirit and its soul and let's slap some mid-Broadway music on it and have people in colorful costumes dance to the music and we'll kind of gloss over the generational trauma that is a core element of the story and uh, come uh, Christmas Day, come out and see the color purple in a bold new way that's reimagined for a modern audience and it's uh, money, please. Like, for the record, we are not bashing the performances. Oh my god, no. Like, the, the artistry is great. Yeah. This is 100% on studio. And, uh, oh, I think I booed the Warner Brothers you logo. You did boo the Warner Brothers logo. At the logo. beginning, because this is the Zaslav era. So we know exactly what he's trying to do. It's a miracle it got released at all. But no, the performances are great. Um, I loved uh, Halle... Oh, I said Halle Berry. <laughs> Halle Bailey. Halle Bailey. Little Mermaid. Bro, she was fucking singing her ass off. She's a wonderful performer. Uh, both actresses who played Celie were incredible performers. Taraji B. Henson as Suge was great. Uh, oh, his name's escaping me. We had that lovely cameo of, uh, what's his face? Denzel playing her stepdad. What a fucking waste of Denzel. You have him there for three lines? Uh, Fantasia Barino was older uh, Seeley. Yes. And younger Seeley was, uh, excuse me, Felicia Pearl Mpasi. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, and for that I apologize. And Mr. was Coleman Domingo. He was great. He was amazing. And also, sidebar, that actor is gay. Coleman Domingo? Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. He was great. Like, the performances were great. Absolutely great. And, like I was saying before, like, visually, it's gorgeous. Yeah. There's, he does a lot of interesting... I was mad at one shot where he was doing too much... <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, our old theater director in uh, college would often think too much about how a scene looked and not about the actors. And I'm not saying that Blitz ignored his actors in this scene, but he lit uh, when Sophia first meets Mr. He lit it from behind through a window in the gin house, and you can't see anyone's faces. Everyone's either lit from behind or covered, and I'm sure it was an intentional choice, because you don't do that accidentally, but, but it just fucking comes- Why? It comes across muddy. Like, it, you almost want to, like, not see his face till he stands up and yells at Harpo. Yeah. Um, it, it's like he made a cool shot to make a cool shot, not for a reason. Like, I couldn't find yeah. a reason behind it. And it's not that it didn't look cool. I just didn't know why. Yeah. And also, like, by the same token, um, with young Nettie, her hat, the way it was designed and the way she was mostly shot, it looked like she had a halo. It was a cool fucking hat, though. I liked the design of that hat. It was really cool. The costume design was great. (laughs) It worked really well. Um, Because she is, of course, you know, the angel to Celie. And that works. But it was just like, it didn't feel like, like you said, it felt like things were done. Oh, this is going to look great. And not because there was a, a reason for it. Yeah. Uh, and like, it's this isn't an action movie where you can kind of get away with yeah. this looks cool, so we're gonna do it. Like I think that might I, I just had a thought. I think that might be why it felt extra soulless. 
was it be- was because they were definitely going for some specific Oscars with it as well. Ugh. I had the thought with that hat. I'm like, the way they're shooting this hat, they're going for a costume design nomination. They're going for a sound design nomination. Like that one shot we were talking about, they're going for a cinematography nomination. So, But you know what nomination they got? The one they got, Sophia. Uh, best Supporting? Best Supporting, Sophia. Which, she, fair. Her. She's great. She's great. <laughs> um, I think she was better than Oprah. To be fair, uh, Nettie's costume is incredible. That yellow dress is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. That said, you and I were both complaining about that final scene when everyone is in white or gray or silver. Yeah, the final Easter dinner. And it's it's a cool design. They're in a big round table around a big tree and it's sprawling and the family's all together again. But everyone is in a pale yellow base color and then white and black or silver accents. The movie's called The Color Purple. Put them in colors. Put them in the color purple. I know it's Easter. I know Easter's all about pastels. You know what color looks great as a pastel? The color purple. (laughs) Like, especially because you're introducing the people who have been in Africa and you have them in African dress. Make their African dresses fucking purple. Like, we, it's not like the Africa of this movie isn't colorful. We see it for about 35 seconds. It's bright and colorful and in reverse at times. It's amazing. But... (laughs) Yeah, like it's it's just such an odd decision, and there, it, it's a movie that could have been great, but is hampered by odd decisions across the board. Yeah, like when we were talking about the the one unique scene to it, which is their movie date. We see a few times they go into a little fanciful musical world in Celie's head when she imagines things, like when she sees her baby in the store when she's young. And she has that scene on the waterfall where she's imagining dancing with the other people at the waterfall. Cool little scene. When she's uh, bathing Suge. And she has her musical number on a giant spinning record with Suge in a bathtub. It's like, okay, perfect. She's entered into like a- an enhanced version of the reality she's in. These are the things that are happening in her head right now. The movie they see on their date is some like fighter pilot movie. And she imagines herself in a movie musical in the 20s. Why aren't they just seeing a movie musical in the 20s? It would make so much more sense and be a better creative decision. It's, again, it's the cool factor. It's like, I'm doing this because it looks cool, but not because it makes sense. It really feels like there was a... I don't know if it's an homage to an actual movie, but you do see, like, a poster, and it's like, uh, they have in, like, big letters, it's like, all-colored cast... So maybe it's an homage to an actual movie in that era. (laughs) Red Wings, directed by George Lucas, (sighs) which he famously claimed was the first all-black cast in a movie. George. (sighs) Is Is it Red Wings or is it a different movie? Or a different title? I don't know. Oh, George Lucas wasn't in The Color Purple. I need to search a different search bar. Are you sure he wasn't? He might have been. I want writer. <sighs> Why did I have to like confidently say something and now think it's wrong? <laughs> Who let me do that? You did. Did he fucking produce it? Red Tails. It was called Red Tails. 
And he produced it. But still, he like when that movie came out, he was like, it's the first all-black cast. And it's an airplane movie. So were they taking shots at George Lucas? Probably not. <laughs> I, I would. I know, I know Mark loves to bring that up. Uh, so I think it's safe to say we did not like this movie. <laughs> no, I can't say when. So if you have access to this movie and you don't have access to the 85, it's not going to hurt. But they're both on max and they're both the same length. Just watch the 85. It's way better. Watching watching this movie, and I don't like generally when people say, oh, the remake of this thing like, killed my childhood because it ruined the thing that still exists. Um, I'm generally not a fan of that, because no, it didn't. The thing that still exists is still there. But this movie made me realize that there are some holes and flaws in the story of the 85 that are glossed over by killer performances that like suck you in and just make you forget. Without Whoopi Goldberg doing her thing, the some story elements of it just don't quite hold up as well. Yeah, this is going to be one of those instances where I'm actually going to say, if you want to understand what the author intended... Read the fucking book. Read the book, because it is very different. This isn't a Chuck Palahniuk situation. Yeah. Where he accepts that the movie is kind of better. No, this is... No, read the fucking book. <laughs> Like, good for Alice Walker. She got paid. Oh, yeah, but, she got paid. But, yeah, the the book is better. Yeah. I enjoy... I, I hesitate to say I enjoyed reading a book that involved, like, incest. Uh, <laughs> until it wasn't incest. And, like, child rape. Um, yeah, statutory and of, incest. And a lot of abuse. Um, but I... I enjoyed the story and reading it more than I enjoyed watching the musical. Yeah. Uh, I definitely enjoyed watching Spielberg's take more than the musical, even though the musical is essentially the same take. Because it's, I mean, produced by Spielberg and based on the musical, based on the Spielberg, not on the book. And it's obvious. So, yeah. The original's on Max. Just watch the original. Do we want to... Um... Well, you kind of did. I was going to say, do you want to go through the, the cast? I went through some of the big ones. Um, like, It's a lot of uh, people in the cast of this one were, or rather are, uh, musicians, current musicians. Like Harpo, I believe, he's a current performer. I can't spell. I looked it up earlier. Corey... Uh, yeah, Corey Hawkins. I think he's... Oh, no. What was I looking at? Were you looking at her? Oh, I was looking at Grady. Grady's like a... He's a performer performer. Her is a performer. Uh, Corey Hawkins, we didn't mention, though. He was in Straight Outta... He played Dre in Straight Outta Compton. Yeah, I was gonna say. And he was in Black Klansman. Um, he was great as well. He played Harpo. He was also in the Carol Churchill play Top Dog Underdog on Broadway. Oh, God, I haven't heard... Oh, sorry, that's not Churchill. It's Susan Laurie Parks. I haven't heard the name of that play in... When did I graduate college? 15 <laughs> years? Uh... He is three years younger than the woman that is supposed to be playing his mother. 
Well, in fairness, the woman who's playing his mother plays a character who is three to five years older than his character. Fair. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> it's not exactly... Oh, he was also in The Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, no shit. Who did he play? Uh, I assume he played uh, Macduff, but let me... I thought Macduff was a bigger name. No, he was Macduff. No shit. Yeah, because I remember we were both like, Macduff is black, yes! <laughs> like, most of that cast was. Oh, no, not most of that cast. I mean, they were just in black Macduff and, white. and yeah, they were in black and white. And Macbeth. Macbeth was black. Oh no! Did we just curse the podcast? Did we? By saying Macbeth? Yes. Oh, if only we recorded this like on a stage, <laughs> where that matters. Oh, I always hated that curse. Anyway, um, I don't have too much more to say about the twenty-three. Yes, you also wanted to see to talk about the um, where are they nows? Oh, I didn't find anything good. Oh, okay. I, I I mostly just said that because like I didn't do a where are they now, and it's because I didn't really know. The only like one to really talk about is uh, Nettie from the original because she's a fucking princess. She's literally like a uh, an African princess. Let me get her name, and I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of this too. <laughs> Akosua Busia played Nettie, and she's the daughter of a former Ghanaian prime minister and prince of the royal family of Wenchi. So she is a literal African princess. I wonder if uh, she knows Latif. Latif Blessing? Yes. Fucking maybe. I don't know, man. (laughs) Uh, So, next time we talk at you, we're going to shift directions a little bit. We had a request. Cody, do you remember what our request was? <laughs> Why? What's wrong? Do you not want to read the book? No. Why not? <laughs> Steven Spielberg has committed few crimes, but the ones he has committed are egregious. Yeah, we're gonna stay in the we're gonna stay in the Spielberg realm next time around but uh not quite the same not quite the same gravitas to this movie talking about uh actually you know this is pretty well related we're talking about cashing in on nostalgia yeah steven spielberg no heart (laughs) that's right next time around due to popular demand as in one listener requested it which is one-eighth of our listenership. <laughs> We're talking Ready Player One. Yay! God fucking damn it. <laughs> Thank you for the request. Fuck you. Genuinely, Fuck you for the request. I'm genuinely happy we got a request, but it was like a monkey's paw curled. <laughs> Why would you do this to me? Thank you.